Do you find it difficult to put into practice the things in the Christian life? The things you learn in the Bible? Maybe you want to be more Christ-like, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, but that seems like such a like impossibly high standard that you're really actually not even sure how to start and put that into practice. Something I've experienced in my own life is um, the beliefs or the things that I, I know I need to do or believe, they actually outstrip my own practice of it. So like, here's where I need to be and then here's, here's where I am. And these last couple of weeks we've been, well we've heard sermons on humility, on grumbling, and in my own life working on my heart to sort of um, see others' interests as more important than my own. Or to tackle that critical grumbling spirit inside well, I know the teaching, but I struggle to put it into practice. Is that something you experience? Do you have someone you look up to, though? Someone who um, actually walks the Christian life kind of how you would like to, to live it? Someone who actually imitates Christ, relatively speaking. Have you hung around people who don't seem to struggle as much? but they actually model the kinds of traits that you, you desire. And maybe you found their good behavior rubbing off on you, or their interests. They become your interests. Well, in the passage we'll look at today, Paul, he, he presses pause on some of the, the really weighty teachings. So there aren't really any uh, complex arcs from like Old Testament to New Testament. There isn't any deep teaching on the attributes of God. There isn't any words in the passage today that theologians have argued about for centuries. He's simply holding up two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as living examples of some of the important things he's been writing to the Philippians. And he's urging the Philippians to put these things into practice. So, as I said, we've been going through the book of Philippians this last month and a bit in a series called Joy in the Midst of Anything. And Philippians, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And despite being written by someone who, well, he's imprisoned, he was experiencing a great deal of suffering. You see rejoicing and joy come up quite a bit. It's, it's everywhere. So let me read you just a few quotes here. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And as we continue through this morning, I just want to lay a foundation for what I mean when I say joy. Borrowing this definition from John Piper, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. And if you want to keep that definition in your back pocket, that's how I'm using joy here, not just as a sort of good feeling. So these last couple of weeks, we've gone through the second chapter of the Philippians, where Paul sets forward Christ as an example of humility. Uh, he's, Christ is literally God. He's literally more important than any of us. Yet Jesus shows a level of humility that's it's very difficult to wrap your minds around. He was born as a man, and he died on a cross. But he's God. 
And Paul implores them to stop their grumbling or disputing so that they might be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And Paul then moves on to the section of his letter that we'll look at this morning. It's a section that at first glance, well, it just looks like an update of travel plans. Yet I think it's directly connected with the teaching before. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up with me to Philippians chapter 2. I will read from verse 19 onwards. And if if you don't have a Bible, I believe the text will be up on the screen behind us. So Philippians chapter 2, I'll begin reading at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I know, or just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord shortly. I myself will come also. And I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed, because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us together in worship this morning. God, we thank you that we get to sing of you and hear from you in your word. And I pray, would you keep my words faithful to you and what you have to say to us this morning, and that all our hearts would be open to receive from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, as I mentioned earlier, At first glance, this text seems like an update of travel plans. And it's maybe a little weird that Paul starts updating it here, like right in the middle of the letter and not at the end. But I mean, it's not entirely uncommon for Paul to do that, but still it's worth digging in. Why this update on Timothy and Epaphroditus here, sandwiched between some heavy teaching on the Christian life? And follow the logic with me here because Paul doesn't spell it out maybe clearly, as clearly as he does in somewhere like 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I think what's going on here is that Paul has just finished this, this very weighty section of teaching. He's written to the Philippians about the amazing humility of Christ, about how they need to put aside their grumbling and disputes and reorient their hearts to see others as more valuable than themselves. And here's these two men, one whom Paul is sending and the other who he's gonna send later, And updating about these two men makes sense right now because they're both examples of the things he's just been teaching. Here are two flesh and blood everyday Christians who exemplify some of the things that Paul's been getting at. 
I mean, you have Timothy, serving with genuine concern for others, serving in the gospel. And then you have Epaphroditus, serving in the work of Christ, even though it almost killed him. And this is one of those, those parts of the Bible, it feels, feels very human. He isn't holding them up like the author of Hebrews does, as like iconic symbols of faithfulness in the history of redemption. I mean, thinking about it in our modern context, Epaphroditus would be sitting right there. You could talk to him. He was a part of the community. We would see him at church and we would, we would notice for ourselves the way that he imitated Christ. We might have prayed for him as a church when we heard that he was sick. And Timothy, he would be that guest preacher. Maybe you met him once after a sermon, thanking him for his message. And maybe a weird thing happened. You know, you thanked him for the message and you wanted to talk about the message and it, it shifted to you and he was genuinely concerned for you. These were real present people in the community. So this morning, we'll look at these two men and what, they, what they're examples of. First, Timothy, or serving for the sake of Christ. And secondly, Epaphroditus, and suffering for the sake of Christ. So first, let's consider Timothy, and I'll read verses 19 to 24 again. Um, but as I do that, consider this text uh, through the lens of putting others before yourself for the sake of Christ. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I shortly, I myself, will come also. So you'll, you'll notice in this section that Paul is, he's going to send Timothy to the Philippians, and one of the first ways he describes Timothy is as genuinely concerned for your welfare. And just backing up a little bit, Timothy, he's mentioned throughout the New Testament. Paul calls him his true child in the faith when he writes to him in 1 Timothy. And out of everyone you read Paul interacting with, Timothy is his protege. He, Paul is like one of his mentors. He is the next generation of Christian leader. So Timothy is likely to be sent to the Philippians because he will genuinely care for them as a Christian leader. And earlier in Philippians, Paul commands them this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, of you, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So do you see a, a parallel there? Paul looks around and he has no one who will be concerned for others. They're focused on their own self-interests, but he has Timothy who isn't like that. And I think it's important to, to note, I think, that Paul is contrasting self-interest with seeking the interest of Christ. So. Timothy is genuinely concerned for their welfare. Timothy is genuinely seeking the interest of Christ. So if I can put it like this, part of the reorienting of our hearts to be more concerned about others than ourselves is seeking the interests of Christ. It's doing what Christ is concerned about. And flipped around, if we're seeking the things that interest Christ, 
we will actually care about others. And if you were here two weeks ago, you heard a sermon on exactly this point. So I don't want to just re-preach that sermon, what has already been said. I just want to press home that some of this isn't always just taught. Some of it is caught. There are people in this church, in the church, they exemplify service for others that is actually rooted in a, a desire for Christ, in a love for Christ. And I think we can recognize these people and we can honor them and we can imitate them. I mean, this is a community. This is part of, of the discipleship that takes place in the Christian life. And as an aside, you know, if you're, you're thinking, oh yeah, yeah, humility, yep, yeah, I'm one of these people. <laughs> it's probably not you. <laughs> I mean, personally, I've experienced people and community like this. And it, it's actually made a huge difference in my life. And I'll just tell you how I see it. It worked out in my life and, and in some of my friends. Um, there were a group, group of us who, we heard the gospel um, just after high school, just, just before the end of high school. Um, and we sort of began to believe and we began to follow Jesus. And we had a family who basically, they, they, they basically took us in, they adopted us, sort of, and they, and they began to mentor us. And so they, they would have us over for lunch, and, and some of us would argue about silly theological things, um, way beyond our current sanctification. And the family, they would, they would feed us lunch, and they would feed us dinner, and they would listen to our problems, and they would put up with our squabbling, and you know, occasionally there'd be some rebuke in there, uh, there, but there was a lot of patience. And that's the thing. This, this family, they modeled service. They modeled genuine concern. And in, in some small measure, that Christ-likeness actually you know, began to rub off on us. And it, maybe if you ask our wives, they might wish it rubbed off a little bit more. But it, it still you know, genuinely changed our lives. And I, I can think of times in my life where I've had a sudden realization, or I've learned something so significant that it just, it changes how I am. But then there's this sort of slow, deceptive change that happens from being around those truths exemplified in people. So there are absolutely men and women in this church who exhibit this kind of caring for others. And probably by their very nature, they aren't the loudest people in the room. And as we participate in community, not just on Sundays when we can make it, but in like real friendships and mentoring relationships, the hope is that some of this sort of holy osmosis can take place. Now, the other thing I'd like to highlight about Timothy, and you can see it in the text here, is that he has served with Paul in the gospel, or you might say the work of the gospel or the preaching of the gospel. And this is the kind of thing that, I mean, this is actually the kind of thing that drew my wife and I to Central. This church is about the good news. It's about the gospel. And that sort of gospel centrality, I mean, it affects all of the different ministries. It's, it's in all of the different ministries. You hear it, I mean, you heard it probably a few weeks ago in the, the baptism and ministry partnership videos where people answer, what is it about the gospel that most captures your heart? Well, Paul, he was about the gospel. He labored constantly to share it, to share the good news of Jesus Christ and what he had done. 
And he looks at Timothy and he says, this guy, this guy has proven himself. He's valuable. Look at his track record. He's served with me in the work of the gospel. So how do we, like Timothy, serve others for the sake of Christ, for their joy? We, we care for them genuinely, and we also we bring them the good news. So if you've got your Bibles, um, I'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment here, and we'll, we'll think about serving in the gospel. So you can turn with me there. I'll just read out verses 1 to 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So if you're at all fuzzy on what the gospel is, on what exactly the good news is of Christianity, this is a passage I invite you to highlight or to bookmark or just keep it with you as a helpful summary of what the gospel is. So the bad news. We're sinners, all of us. God has created all things. He, he is perfect. And by, and by breaking away from him in sin, we've created this, this chasm between us. And we can't cross the chasm. We can't reconcile by ourselves. I mean, elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about being dead in trespasses and sins. That's how, that's how serious this is. That's how final it is. But then there's the good news. Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, he came and he lived a perfect life. He died on a cross, taking our punishment, what we deserve for our sins, and he rose again to give his people eternal life. And God calls everyone to turn from their sin to Christ and trust in him. And in doing so, they're saved. They are reconciled. So if you consider yourself a Christian and you've been in church for a while, you might think that I'm about to drop some like evangelism guilt on you. But I don't want to set this high standard for evangelism. Uh, you know, I'm not going to press you on, you know, how many people have you shared the gospel with this week? It's not what I'd like, that's not what I'd like to do. The gospel, it's the good news that can reconcile someone who is utterly lost, who is on the brink of eternal death and can bring them to eternal life. If we believe this and we know we should do more for the gospel, maybe we need to go find someone who's better at it than us at, at giving it to others and catch it from them. If we're horribly awkward, and I am, <laughs> maybe you know, living with and seeing people bring, bring Christ to the lost. Maybe that's what we need. Not more guilt, but community with people who are living it out well. Well, secondly, let's look at Epaphroditus. I'll read out verses 25 to 30 again. And consider this section through the lens of suffering for the sake of Christ. 
I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So with Epaphroditus, I think there's a, another parallel from earlier in the chapter here. Um, you have Christ held up as having ob- been obedient to the point of death. And here you have Epaphroditus in his obedience, brought to the point of death, though saved by the mercy of God. So there's that parallel. And, and Epaphroditus, he gets, he gets sent by the Philippians, bringing financial aid to Paul as he's in prison, but, but also to help him. And somewhere in that, whether on the way to Paul or while he was with him, he gets really ill and he nearly dies. So you have this man who, he travels a long distance to bring money and to bring uh, support to Paul and he nearly dies doing it. And what is his main concern? Well, this is, this is the picture of someone who is more concerned about Christ, more concerned about others than he is himself. He's primarily concerned for the people back home that they'll be worried about him. I mean, this is the kind of selflessness that is more worried about how suffering is actually affecting others than about how it's affecting you. So I would put it forward to you that just as Timothy is an example of serving others with genuine care, Epaphroditus demonstrates a service through hardship. Or put another way, he exemplifies suffering for the work of Christ. Not just doing what is easy or what is convenient, It's comfy, but in his aid for others, in his desire to serve Christ, and in his church, he actually almost dies. And notice one of the terms Paul here uses of Epaphroditus. He calls him a fellow soldier. And I think that flavors sort of the example of suffering here for the work of Christ. This isn't, it's not passive. It isn't just the experience of hardship in itself, but it's marching through hardship with actual intent. Epaphroditus was a messenger and a minister of the, of the Philippians, like a soldier. And now, I, I'm quite thankful to one of the commentaries I was reading on this for pointing out the connection between Epaphroditus here and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor and a theologian uh, in the first half of the 20th century in Germany. And as Nazism was sort of attempting to bring the the German churches um, sort of under its influence, he was a part of what was called the Confessing Church, which was resisting that. And if you find Bonhoeffer at all intriguing, um, I actually definitely recommend you read Eric Metaxas's biography of him. I know we have it in the church library. I'm not sure if you have it physically here, but I know you could put a request in for it. So Bonhoeffer, he, he was essentially um, 
Yeah, he, he's, he's an example of Epaphroditus here. Bonhoeffer, he had a chance to get out of Germany in the late 30s and go serve in America. And he actually did travel there. And then he wrestled with, with being away from Germany and, and being away from his people. And eventually he wrote the following in a letter, which I think really mirrors this. So I'll just read that part out to you. I have had the time to think and pray about my situation and that of my nation and have God's will for me clarified. And I have come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share in the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying their civilization. And I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice in security. So Bonhoeffer's choice was to go back to Germany to work to subvert the Nazi's government the Nazi government's corruption of the church, to eventually work to help Jews escape from Germany, to eventually become a spy. And these were all driven by a commitment to Christ. It was work against the nation for the sake of Christ, or submit to the nation and abandon Christ. And he chose the choice of suffering. It resulted in prison and eventually, just months before the end of the war, his own death in a concentration camp. So this is, it's certainly something that ought to characterize our own lives. I mean, we should be genuinely concerned for others. Absolutely. We should bring the gospel to others. I mean, as, as Paul says in, in the letter to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Yet let's... Let's look to Epaphroditus here as well. And let's look to Bonhoeffer and Paul and Jesus himself as examples of serving in hardship, even when it costs. Let's, let's imitate those among us who, like Bonhoeffer, aren't making their choices in security. Well, now the other thing I'd like to highlight about Epaphroditus is this kind of, you'll notice it at the end of the section here, it's a, it's a sort of harsh sounding phrase, um, I'll read it out. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is actually like a really intriguing part of the, the, of the text. Is Paul taking like a, a jab at the Philippians, telling them, you didn't do enough, but Epaphroditus, he, he did it. And the language, it might sound kind of familiar to you, um, in Colossians 1.24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I don't think Paul is criticizing the Philippians here. The book of Philippians, I mean, it contains correction for that church, but I mean, overall, it is, it's a letter of encouragement and friendship and joy. I mean, Paul writes at the end of the letter, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help 
for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And this, it definitely doesn't sound like he's unhappy with them. And I don't think Paul is simply saying, you know, you owed me money and Epaphroditus brought me the money and now we're good, now we're square. Rather, what Paul was lacking was the Philippians themselves. He lacked their presence. He lacked their community. And that's what Epaphroditus brought to Paul. I mean, Epaphroditus, he came to Paul not bringing money that fills up a lack, but himself. And it, it's similar to what, what Paul mentions in, verse, in the verse um, from Colossians that I just, just quoted. Paul doesn't, in Colossians, Paul doesn't make up for the shortcomings of Christ because Christ doesn't have shortcomings. I mean, it, it's making up that personal presence to others. So I'm just going to read to you uh, something that John Piper had to say on this point. Christ has prepared a love offering for the world by suffering and dying for sinners. It is full and lacking in nothing, except one thing, a personal presentation by Christ to the nations of the world. God's answer to this lack is to call the people of Christ, people like Paul, to make a personal presentation of the afflictions of Christ to the world. In doing this, we fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We finish what they were designed for, namely a personal presentation to the people of the world who do not know about their infinite worth. So what can we learn from Epaphroditus on this point? The giving of ourselves, of our time, and our lives to others. We can share the gospel with others. We can give gifts of money to those in need. And those things are absolutely necessary and they, they're fantastic. They're wonderful. But there is something lacking, something that hasn't yet been filled up. If you only ever hand someone a gospel tract and some grocery money. And I absolutely, you know, at this point, don't want to just like keep guilt upon you if that's what you do, because that isn't wrong. There, there are way too many people in the world and in this country and in this city and in this church for you to invest and build into every one of them. There just isn't enough time. It's just not possible. But the question that I, I want to ask is if you believe the gospel and you are trusting in Christ, who are you pouring into? Into whose life are you making up what is lacking? The church, it's a community. It shouldn't be weird to call someone up just to see how they're doing, to check in with them. I mean, it shouldn't be weird to go out for coffee with someone just, just to encourage it shouldn't be weird to have a group of friends where, where they can minister to you and you can minister to them in return. That shouldn't be weird. For who are you suffering, even if it's hard, that they might increase in joy? That they might experience something more of Christ? So as we close, Think with me of Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples, serving and suffering for the sake of Christ. 
for the joy of others. They embody the things Paul has been calling the Philippians to pursue. They each mirror Christ. Are we fighting to be like this? To count others as more valuable than ourselves? To do what Christ calls us to do, even when it's difficult? It isn't comfortable? Even when it takes us through suffering? And if we are failing at this, which we do, are we in community with those who have, they've walked further than us, who have tasted maybe more of Christ, and they're living to a greater degree in a manner worthy of the gospel? Do we honor these brothers and sisters? Do we spend time with them? Do we try and catch some of what we struggle to learn ourselves? And going, going back to what Christian joy is, what I had, what I had quoted at the beginning, it's a, it's a good feeling in the soul, produced by the Holy Spirit, as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Do you have years of experience pursuing Christ? Of being shaped by him and learning from him? Fighting sin in your own life so that you can shine forth? and represent him in the world. Are you sharing that joy with others? Are you opening your homes? Are you present in the lives of others so that they might be built up in that same joy? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love the love that you've shown us for sending your son to die in our place, for not leaving us without hope, but making a way for us to be reconciled to you. And Jesus, we thank you for your love and your humility in dying for sinners and taking the place of those who didn't deserve it and reconciling us to you. We pray that your gospel would continue to go forth and as many more people come to know you, that you would continue that reconciliation. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would bring joy. That in this community, you would show Christ through your word and through the men and women around us who imitate him. So God, help us to share what grace we have been given with others and to learn from and receive and receive receive from them in turn. Help us to live as the church, as a gathering of believers that would honor you and would represent you in the world. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.